action I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Nicole Yershon, a fire starter who will keep away from our flammable substances, Nicole is CEO of the NY Collective, where she ignites fires of change, consulting with huge brands like Ford, British Airways and Pizza Hut. Nicole's time at Ogilvy and Mather saw her set up their London Digital Innovation Lab, where she, in Rory Sutherland's own words, pimped him out to fund all the R&D and innovation. The drum heralded her as one of the 25 most influential women in the British digital industry over the last 25 years. And that's not to mention her best-selling Amazon book, Rough Diamond. Nicole says, I'm not normal. I am not a conformist. I have always been a bit of a mischief maker in pursuit of getting things done. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Wow. At least I know now I can swear on this show, in case, <laughs> in case something crops up. Of course you can, of course you can. Uh, seven quickfire questions. Okay. Tea or coffee? Depends where the coffee's being made. That's fair. Book or Facebook? A little bit of both. London or can? Oh, London, definitely. Mentoring or speaking? Both. Dave Trot or Rory Sutherland? Trotty. Conform or rebel? Only rebel um, for the right reasons, not for rebelling sake. Good answer. And ridiculously, labs or kebabs? Depends if I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Nicole, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first job in this crazy industry of ours? Okay. First ever job was peck. Petticoat Lane Market, um, as a 13 or 14-year-old, on a blouse stall. Wow. Yeah. Um, In those days, you could work uh, when you were younger. And my parents, although I had a really privileged upbringing, my parents had a really strong work ethic. And if I was going to need money, then I had to earn it myself. So that was my first job. Freezing cold, early mornings on a Sunday. Um, Yeah. How early? I think we would be up and out the house, whatever the first train came through, I don't know, half five, six o'clock. Wow. And were you selling? (laughs) Yeah, selling on a blouse stall. Wow. What did you learn there? Well, you learn how to interact with people and how to get the best out of people. And and some people that started off grumpy actually were quite sweet. Uh, Once you, you know, won them round or... um, it, it was a really ba- good baptism of fire as to human nature. Yeah. Amazing. Did you enjoy it? Loved it. Yeah, it was really good. I was there for quite a few years. There was one really horrible moment where I was, I'd just been paid my wages, which was about, I think, 10 quid. And I was walking back to this, I think, Liverpool Street Station. And, um, and I had the envelope in my hand and someone ran past me and grabbed it. And stole my wages. Oh, <laughs> I know. Again, really good life lesson. Yeah. 
Yeah, hold on to your money. Yeah, hold on to your money. Oh, Don't... shit. Yeah. Um, That's a horrible thing to happen well, at any age. It's it's life. Mm. And, and you then don't do that again. <laughs> it's good learning, as long as you learn from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how did you go from selling blouses to, yeah. to advertising? So, um, well, I had a bit of, um, you know, I, I understood the industry from the eyes of my father, Mike Yershen, and he was a kind of like, I guess, original madman um, doing media. And so I also, and I went to a finishing school in Hampstead called St. Godrick's and they had um, various different jobs on offer and I went in um, and St. Godrick's was the finishing school and I think my parents thought that they'd they'd smooth out the edges. (laughs) And I went in uh, as a secretary to about 25 people at Dorland's. And uh, that was where I started. So just working for 25 people screaming and shouting and wanting things all at once. Again, a real um, baptism of fire from making the teas or doing presentations or sending faxes at the time or, um, or telexes or whatever. You know, it was, I'm going back many, many years. Or just, just general helping people. Mm. And did they smooth out all the edges? Uh, I had a really strong, I always had a strong sense of um, self and values. So I wasn't the kind of person that was going to put up with any bullshit. I guess, yeah, I I learned loads in terms of working in an office environment and personalities and how to get things done. And then you found yourself working alongside... The, the wonderful man, Dave Trott. Yeah, so that was, so I'd, um, at the time I'd sent, so I was in that job for about a year and I knew I, I didn't want to stay doing that. So I sent about 100 letters uh, to the top 100 agencies and I think maybe I got 20 replies and out of those 20 replies I got uh, 10 thanks but no thanks and maybe I got two were looking for someone and I got one interview and, and that was with Dave. Oh, wow. And got the job. So it was literally, um, and I think I was only 19 or 20 at the time. Yeah. So it was it was interesting. And I went there working for his head of traffic at the time and creative services director in creative services uh, production department. Mm. And um, very, very quickly just moved from there because Dave gave everyone opportunities if he could see that there was um, talent. Mm. And so whoever you were, wherever you were from, and so I, I was one of those who had a talent for getting shit done. And so yeah. therefore I was very quickly moved to uh, work with him directly doing traffic. And that was evident quite early on, wasn't it? I've, I've, I've read or researched more about that, that even at the fresh tender age of 19, you yeah. were... You were... Fearless. You know, fearless, yeah, yeah. And challenging, yeah. challenging. I think process. it was more to do with... Dave was a really easy pe- person for me to read. So if he had his dark glasses on, how I saw that was that don't go in there and drive him mad. He can't get his lenses in. So therefore, get, you know, don't do it today. And I would offer that. So I started to learn and read different people um, to get things done. So some people needed stroking, some people needed a cajole, some people needed a rocket up their ass. Because I was trying to get stuff out of them they didn't really want to do or didn't have time to do. And mm. I couldn't do it, mm. but I had to get it done. Yeah. Because either Dave would say, are you not strong enough to do your job? Or it would be someone else's 
for. But the the level of responsibility that we all had to take at GGT and Simons Palmer was ridiculous. So if it wasn't done and it was on your shoulders, you needed to have a really good excuse as to why. Mm. Or shout early and say, I'm not getting this done because he was just very good at be, you know, it being black and white. Mm. And that suited my mentality and, and personality because then you can't go wrong. There's no... Um, passive aggressive or backstabbing or let's have a meeting and discuss something and walk out and it's something different it just didn't work like that under Dave because it was just honest talk Mm. so everyone that went through school of Dave and and of GGT and Simon's Palmer we are all pretty much the same ilk Mm. very strong values very strong sense of self get shit done uh, don't deal with bullshit very well uh, not mean not nasty I, I never found I've always found Dave very gentlemanly mm. but it just was what it was have you done your job or have you not have you got that script or have you not and and we did used to run it like you know traffic as a football team so or, or you know the, the agency mm. as a whole so if you are in the goal if you're a goalie if you're a planner like mm. stay in the goal don't come out to try and fire the, yeah. the shoot the football. Yeah. So it so everyone knew their role and everyone took responsibility for what they needed to do by a certain time and it worked like clockwork. Mm. It was brilliant. Today that should remain true in any agency, really, shouldn't it? Just understand your role. Yeah. Your job is to get it from this stage to the next stage. What I guess the larger agencies, and obviously I've experienced that when I was at Ogilvy, is... Um, you at GGT and Simons Palmer, you were rewarded for that kind of behaviour. Mm-hmm. At the larger agencies, you're rewarded for being political. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not being political, then you're being a pain in the ass, which I <laughs> fell into that category. <laughs> but the difference of, you know, I was a pain in the ass that delivered. So they would put up with my kind of shit. Yeah. Well, I know Dave's um, said many nice things about you, but the, the shortest one is, is and, and most flattering, I would suggest, is Nicole Yershon is genuinely creative. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Nice. Bless him. Well, I guess it's, it's how people see creativity and, and I see creativity how Dave sees creativity, mm. which is solving a, a problem and being ingenious and being entrepreneurial and finding a way and making a way and... Um, so we understood each other. Yeah, yeah, it's much more intelligence, isn't it? And, and, and just having smarts and wit and, and, as you said earlier, finding the way to get shit done mm. with whoever it was you needed their assistance. Yeah. So that is creativity and creative thinking, not the stylist, yeah. aesthetic kind of... I thing. think I was also... I, I was lucky because my, the words that came out of my mouth, it was though everyone in the agency was listening to Dave. So I was his mouthpiece, if you like. Mm. I was getting things done, and so people would would jump because if if I've said it, I, I had his backing, and I think that was the same at Ogilvy. I had the backing of a CEO and chairman at the time who were visionary to say, I don't know what it is that you need to do. I just know that we need to bring it into the twenty first century. It's yeah. like the civil service. There's lots of paper, and I don't know who's busy and who's not. Or can you just fix it? Having um, someone give you that ability to be a maverick and to fix, not in the short term, but fix in the long term. I mean, I had a note recently from a CFO who's been with Ogilvy for 20 years and she said she just finished reading my book and she just went, I've said to numerous people, uh, the offices I've been working in around the world, why, didn't, why don't we have a Nicole? 
because she's just what she's done in that space of time has been incredible. But I guess um, they are more looking for short term solutions. And any CEO that is in those companies don't stay very long. So, you know, in her 20 years, there's probably been 10 CEOs that have come through the door. Yeah. It's a short term thing. Short term tenures is a, represent a problem, don't they? But so how did you end up at Ogilvy? Just pure, um, I've never done a CV, so it's just pure reputation and and so GGT I work with um, the people that set up Simon's Palmer, so we were all at GGT, GGT together, Simon Clemo, Carl Johnson um, and Paul Simons and they set up Simon's Palmer and I went to work with them after about five years at GGT and I was there for nine years and uh, had my kids there and they allowed me back on a three-day week and I, I had like 12 weeks maternity I think at the time and then I got a phone call from the chairman of Simon's Palmer when he'd sold his company he was at Ogilvy and he said he was the one who gave me that brief there was him and a guy called Mike Walsh who had been at Ogilvy for many years really well respected lovely lovely guy and they understood the power of, of what it was that I was going to be able to deliver. And I always had their backing. So very difficult to do a job like I was doing without the backing of, of those kind of people. Yeah. And, and what you did was, was, you know, revolutionary to a point. So bringing Ogilvy into the 21st century, binning 10,000 reels, yeah, everything else. About 60,000 reels. 60,000 reels, 60, well. reels in Stockwell. Right. in storage that yeah. they were paying X amount of money for every month, like rent, to, to keep these um, reels in. And I, I, the technology was there. The technology was changing. I was just keeping up to speed with it all and seeing all the companies that were doing interesting things. Mm-hmm. And I'd found a, a company where you could digitise all of those reels and then start putting them into uh, digital asset management systems. And it just kind of went from there. So I was always on the lookout for what were we doing that wasn't working or could be done better, bigger, better, stronger, faster, and then implementation. It was, it was not rocket science. It was being incredibly efficient. But the, a lot of the problems that, you know, there was a couple of things that I talked about in the book with, say, the Pizza Hut client. There were things that I was trying to change where my efficiency was was directly going against the business model, where they can earn lots of money by charging for lots of people, for lots of meetings, to just keep going on and on and on with meetings and solving the wrong problem really well. I was the opposite end where I was suggesting five people on the job maximum, not charging by the hour, charging by the project specifically and getting it done efficiently. That was then always going to be uh, an issue. Mm. I'm not just talking about the ad industry. I'm talking about anyone that, that charges in that way. Yeah, and, and I suppose for that, it wasn't just a case of making systems which were antiquated or processes which were quite antiquated, bringing them up to speed. It was, as you say, it was the business processes in, uh, associated. Yeah, it was getting money in for, 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 the, for the person and trying to put as many people on that project as possible. And when you do that, things then get less efficient because you've got everyone's got a point of view. You can't gather everyone to the meeting on time. No one's taking responsibility. So when you, when you do something very efficiently, which I'm obviously, I mean, that's my bread and butter. That's yeah, what yeah, I'm capable of doing. 
where you then to do one job you have five people on it two of them are on client side and the client is told very very clearly where there's going to be no face-to-face meeting everything's going to be done on whatsapp or slack or whatever it was that we picked there's going to be three people agency side myself the producer and rory who was the um the creative and it's going to be turned around in and very clearly defined this is what you need to do by this date so my traffic experience comes really into account and people taking responsibility that if you haven't done it by a certain date then you're not going to get to the air date so if you're coming on this train with me then you need to abide by the rules so that we can all work together to get done what you want to get done and then it works brilliantly it's reminded me actually um going off on a slight tangent of actually one of dave trott's blogs about locksmiths and the locksmith that has to make it look like what he's doing is actually quite difficult because any locksmith can get through a door within seconds. But actually, <laughs> if they did that, you'd, you'd you know, turn your nose up at their invoice. Yeah. Whereas if they make it look really hard yeah. to get in. Well, that's the Picasso story as well, isn't it? It's a variation of lots of, of these kind of things. But Picasso story where, where someone um, sees Picasso in a, a cafe and says, oh, my gosh, Picasso, I can't believe it. And, and do you think you could just do a little something on my napkin? And, um, he, and he says, sure. So he does a little squiggle and then he hands it back. She says, I must give you something for that. He says, that will be $80,000. <laughs> sh- and she says, but it took you two minutes. He said, madam, it's taken me 80 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard that. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So what was it like pimping out Rory? And why did you pimp Rory out for anyone who's unsure that's listening? So... When I was at Ogilvy and, um, and I was doing all these things and, and semesters of learning and, and you know, increasing a, a huge black book of, of talent that wasn't just directors and illustrators and you know, for advertising, this was looking at people in streaming and gaming and mobile and social and AI and AR and VR and 3D printing. And I would do these semesters to be able to have an understanding of who is out there and who is best in breed at doing those things. So we could then implement something that would be, um, that a client would pay for to give Ogilvy a different business model to not always be doing a, a TV ad. There are all of these other things that could be relevant and we've done it once. So therefore we can do it again. So in doing the semesters and being able to, uh, and being given the a, a role of setting up the innovation lab in London, the digital innovation lab, they said to me, we want to do these labs around the world and we want you to do London, but there's no money. But we'll pay you, we'll keep paying your salary. Uh, and uh, but there's no money to, to do all the things that I was wanting to do to, to do these semesters and, and make these things tangible so that they could then be put forward for awards and, uh, and, and hit kind of my own targets of uh, measures of success. And so when they said we don't have any money, I just thought in the same way that most entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs would think, well, how else can I get money in? And I'd seen Rory speak at client meetings years before. And I said, Rory, you're a really good speaker. What if I could act as your agent and I could get you on the TED circuit and the speaker circuit and I act as your agent and the money that I get in for you to talk comes into my lab R&D pot um, that I'm creating and is that would that be okay with you he said absolutely so we started to build a little pot of money that was always under I shouldn't be saying this but it was always (laughs) under 100 grand so that the WPP auditors wouldn't see it um, and therefore not take it so I could keep this little stash of money and innovate within it because the minute you have to ask for approval 
the, the, they'll immediately say no. Whereas if I didn't need to ask permission because I had the money there. But management, at least there was a CEO and a, a chairman and, and people who allowed me to do that, allowed me to keep that pot, allowed me to keep delivering. And then it was really good because then once Rory had been established, I then said that everyone said, has he written a book? I said, uh, has he published? I said, no, but he does, has been published in Brown Republican Spectator. So I said to Rory, can we uh, pull together a book based on those articles? And we called it The Wiki Man. And I was the publisher, <laughs> not that I'd ever published a book ever before. Um, and then when people said to me, can we have Rory speak? I'd then say, oh, do you want his book as well at publisher's cost? And that would just increase the money coming into our R&D lab. Amazing. It's hard to get hold of the wiki man. I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... I don't know. <laughs> the guys actually that that um, that could probably help with that are it's nice that and, okay, yeah, and yeah, Will yeah, and yeah, Alex because yeah. yeah. that was one of the first jobs that they did was published um, was do all of the design and everything for the Wiki Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had a a, a guy from Ravensbourne, um, I think it was Rupert, who did all of the editing of all of the stories to weave them together. It was a brilliant book. It is, yeah. It's yeah. wonderful. It's wonderful. But yeah, notoriously hard to get hold of a printed copy. Also, while you were at Ogilvy, I must touch on this just because a friend of the show and past guest, Giles Rhys-Jones, I believe, was, in, was involved. Was yeah. your, you famously flooding Second yes, Life. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Giles, again, was, was similar to me in that we were entrepreneurial and we wanted to find a way and make a way. And um, he was instrumental in the early days of, of you know, doing the labs and strategy behind it and why should we... Because it was always hard to sell it in to the organization so he was really good at speaking their language um to so i'll have all these ideas and visions but maybe i can't put it down on paper and and he would be able to we would just work really well together and um, there were a few of us there's a girl called olivia who's also at what three words um and so he was quite instrumental in in the beginning of of the labs in finding your right tribe and trying to do something that you thought was was absolutely the way forward and then when he left Ogilvy, was, um, he didn't really know if, if was he was going to go to What Three Words or there was other job offers. And when he decided to do What Three Words, then I just would meet with him a couple of times and just gave him access to my black book and you need to meet this one, go to this event. Have you seen this? Have you heard of this? And, and just helped him um, on his way. So, But I haven't seen him actually for a little while. But yeah, they're doing well. They're doing well, well aren't they? they? Really yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I, funny enough, I, I came across it, we touched on this on the pod, so listeners can fast forward the next minute or so, but I, when I first discovered What Three Words, it was that moment where I just thought, why the hell aren't people talking about it? Why isn't this out there? Why aren't people yeah. using it? And, it? and it maybe took a few years. As it is, does take is, a few yeah. years, these things, yeah. You need to hit that tipping point, don't you? Which I think right. it's fair to say they certainly have You've just got to be consistent. Yeah, yeah, but it's a lovely idea. It's hard not to get turned on by ideas like that. And then, I mean, there's a few threads that I, I definitely want to, and, and I hope that we can not just conclude with, but pick up again when we talk about your wonderful book, Rough Diamond. But I know fearlessness is something that is a, a consistent. I recently attended the Fearless Breakfast, heard your great father speak. Can you talk to me about fearlessness, just in general, but also your the fearless manifesto? Sure. I guess... I've always been a little bit not starstruck or not felt intimidated 
by people who were bullies or, or trying to intimidate in some way. And I would always ask the thick user question, you know, why doesn't that work? Or, or I, if I can't do it, then no one would do it. You know, if I'm implementing um, strategies and I've got IT people or techies behind me saying, oh, no, you've turned the wrong way or you've done the wrong command. And I'm like, well, if I've done it, everyone's going to do it, so we need to change it. So I've always had that feeling of... Don't try and um, bully me into something that doesn't come naturally. And I'm always the first to say, I don't get it or I don't understand it or um, please explain it to me. I don't have that kind of big ego to, to worry that someone thinks I'm stupid because maybe I am. Or maybe, but, but tell me <laughs> once yeah. I know once, yeah. I, I won't do it again. So I've always had that kind of attitude. And um, even if someone's been a CEO or a post, post boy, I've always treated everybody the same. Um, if you're going to act like a dick and you're a post boy, I'm going to treat you like yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're yeah. acting like a dick. Or if yeah. you're going to be very humble and wonderful as a, as a leader, then I'm going to treat you with, with that kind of respect. So again, it's not, it's not rocket science how I go about my fearlessness. It's just something that's inbuilt within me where I just feel... If someone is behaving in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm just happy to say it. My other half, John, calls me the baby-faced assassin. <laughs> because to look at me, you would think, oh, she's really sweet. And But actually, then I come out with these killer comments that are just pure basic what everyone's thinking. But I just want to, to know. The Fearless Breakfast came about because I'd been doing some work with London Business School and um, and I'd done some work with who they were the teaching. I'd been pulled in as a practitioner as opposed to a theorist uh, for this company. And I met with them. And uh, we, firstly, we didn't. They wanted me to do a talk at the business school. I said, "There's only eight of them. Let's go take it to Soho House. Let's have a, a proper discussion rather than PowerPoint presentations. And let's do it in a different way." So one of the, the people, and we went through the issues that I'd gone through, problems I've encountered, solutions I've put in place in terms of change within a large organisation. And one of the guys turned around and said, um, I said, what, what issues are you facing? He said, well, I've been trying to affect change for the last four years, me and my team, and it's just never going to happen. We go to the, our line manager and there's always a yes, but, and nothing ever happens and ideas stay in the bottom drawer. And I now have a KPI attached to me uh, doing this course at London Business School, which is change. And I've been trying to do change for four years and it's just, you know, what, how are you going to help me type thing? So I said, well, I can help you immediately. There were eight people there. So I said, do you all have access to budget? They said, yes. I said, okay, so can we take a little bit of each of your budgets and make one pot? That means you're all in it together. You don't really know each other. You're in different countries, but you all work for the same organization. But now you all are in it together with this one pot of money from each of you. Now let's work out issues that you've all encountered that are generic, not just your issues, but issues across all of you. And they came up with, a, you know, um, two or three that were that were really good. I said, and now let's, you know, for the next hour, talk about solutions for those issues and, and what could be done. And we probably came up with about seven or eight different solutions. So I then said, so what's stopping you? You've got your pot of money there. You know what your problems are. You've now, we've now worked out some solutions that can be implemented. And they looked at me with two things. like One, like I'd handed them the crown jewels, but two, with utter, utter fear. And then I got a barrage of yes buts.
And I said, well, I don't know why you're saying that to me because we've already gone through the fact that you don't need to get permission. This is your pot of money. You can do with it as you want. I said, so I'm just holding a mirror up to all of you in that you are not taking responsibility for your actions. It's easy for you to blame your line manager for the last four years and actually do it yourself. You've got the funds there. And it was, it then gave me that um, impetus to kind of think, I mean, I'd written about the Fearless Manifesto in the book anyway, but it really made me think in business why nothing gets done and they talk about wanting to do it but they can't do it and a lot of it is based on fear and so that's why I kind of came about doing the fearless breakfast in line with my dad because dad we'd been talking about the fact that it was 60 years that he's been in the business and we were talking that you know he had a 20-year plan I thought, oh my God, that's the opposite of being fearful. I mean, this this guy just wakes up every day and just wants to um, help CEOs. I mean, really help them to see the wood from the trees. So that's why we kind of did the breakfast and and Trotty came along and and had some lovely stories about dad. And and I still kind of push forward with, with trying to get people to embrace. It feels difficult, uh, but you've got to push through that. And there will be... Normally three months in case of implementing new ways of doing things. Really, after three months, people forget how they used to do it once you've put that change in place. Yeah. And that's where the whole behaviour thing comes in line. I mean, it's a real consistent. We've talked about risk and risk aversion in the industry and, and again, in different shapes and sizes. But I think that yes, but response is, is alarmingly common. And it's, you know, it's human instinct, isn't it? To, yeah. To, to be concerned about change but um, I suppose blaming your line manager I mean that's something that you wouldn't have got away with at GGT no no there's if an idea comes out then you find a way to get it done uh, you you pull upon your network you pull upon and that's the the beauty of of being a super connector which is kind of what I am but the finance people don't seem to know how to measure that and it is immeasurable in terms of how you can make something happen from nothing and the alchemy that, that goes with it. Yeah, that's a really um, topical point to mention. I'm, I'm Funny enough, I'm doing a talk in a few weeks' time where I talk about the sense and nonsense around creativity and creative thinking yeah. and just that whole point that I know comes up that Rory's mentioned before about there. There's, there's nowhere on a spreadsheet to measure creativity. Yeah. But unfortunately, I mean, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I like to think more and more recently with the explosion of certain digital channels and methods of ad delivery, that measurability is is such an expected thing to have and Mm. for people to be able to... Depends what you're measuring, though. That's Mm. the whole thing. Exactly. So at at Ogilvy, for instance, because I I mean, the lab closed down was because I wasn't running it as a P&L. So the only way that the CEO who closed it down would measure success of the lab was purely based on money coming in. Now, I had six measures of success. My measures, and which I made up, you know, for, for, for us as a team to save us probably from getting fired. <laughs> well, I mean, it helped for, for 16 years. but And that was, I call them my six R's. So as long as you were showing a little bit of revenue, which I did with Rory, reputation, which was PR or awards, which was their way of of, uh, clients liking their work. 
So revenue, reputation, retention of existing staff, because they would be working on exciting projects within the lab. I'd ask them to put their hands up, you know, who's interested in behavioural science. And then I'd get the whole, I send it to all of the company, 2,000 people. I'd get maybe a dozen people saying, I'm in. And I'd get them as my advocates, yeah. uh, you know, and they'd work with, with us as the lab team on that semester. So all of their learning was then all pulled together and disseminated. So... Uh, revenue, reputation, retention of, ex of existing staff, recruitment of new diverse talent, which is Rough Diamond, relationships, that's the black book that came out of the semesters where we would see 10 to 15 different companies every single week, and responsibility giving back. Now, I felt that for me, they were really good measures of success to keep us doing what we were doing. Not good enough for a CEO who's an Excel spreadsheet person who is looking at the space that you are in, how many Macs do you have, your your money, your pension, your whatever it is, the, the final um, amount, and just looking to just, let's just cut it. So I, it's not that I'm stupid. <laughs> I do understand the, the metrics, but it is all too familiar that the metrics are financial. Yeah, yeah. Big building to cover huge salaries to cover maybe there's another way uh but they won't look at that because yeah. they've got to appease the shareholders each quarter yeah that's a really really good point those six hours are wonderful too and and just having just having a different type of measure and understanding yeah. a truer measure is, is is so important but it's hard to communicate that right in certainly in, i suppose big businesses well only when they've got um one measure of success which is financial I mean, I'm sure many businesses have lots of measures, uh, but where, you know, from my experience and the experience that you know, when the lab was closed down, that was the only reason. And the reason I can speak so freely about it was because I didn't sign anything. Yeah. I didn't, you know, sign an NDA or or take money to um, for a a story that was not the truth. Um, so let's talk about NY Collective. Yeah. So what is the NY Collective, what, and what does it do? It's funny because a lot of people say, oh, have you moved to New York? I'm like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're my initials, yeah. <laughs> which is a good play yeah. on, on, um, you know, on my name. But the NY Collective is, it's a, a mix of things as to the, the kind of things that I do from working directly with brands like Go Compare or um, Great Western Railway or Danone or where I'm, I'm orchestrating. Straighting, I guess, for want of another word, where I'll go in there, they have a specific problem or want to launch something specific, and they don't have the expertise or don't know who is an expert within their company, or maybe they need a couple of trombones or a violin or this or that, and then I harness the power of the collective and the black book and, and the people within the organisation where I sniff out the rough diamonds or the people, you know, the jobs that they're doing and all oh, that would be really good for that. And that's where you then start to see three people doing the same job or three people speaking to the same company and didn't even know that they were speaking to the yeah. same company. So it's just streamlining. And so there'll be things like that, or there'll be things, you know, like I've done with uh, Danone, which is to educate, inspire and, and do days, um, workshop days for them or event days where I'm pulling in, you know, the question is, what will our supply chain look like, um, future supply chain with infants, baby nutrition? And then we'll work, you know, from cow to consumer, and then we'll work with them as to who they have already that they're working with, bring it all together within a day, inspire them with, with people who will sit on their supply chain startups, perhaps, or people that I've found, we've found that are interesting. Um, 
So it could be that, it could be a visor a role, lots of different lots things. Lots of variety. Lots of variety. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I've not worked with anyone in marketing or advertising since I left Ogilvy. Oh, really? No. Intentionally? No. no. It, just, it just seems that brands I, I go to direct and they're not necessarily the marketing element. I'm, I'm finding much more because of business and, and you know, understanding business that much more now, especially since being away from, from that space, is that when you're advertised, a, say, a Dove ad, and there's a, a, a bottle and a, we as customers now, we look at that ad and we think, well, where's that bottle from then? Where's that plastic? What's inside it? Or, or who, the company that's, that's advertising that, well, how are they treating their women? Do they have women on their board? And then we're looking at the manufacturing and, and supply chain. So now there are three elements that we as consumers demand, not just to be advertised at the marketing, but also we need the, the management of that company and also the manufacturing of that company. The it's issue, much bigger view. Much bigger yeah. view. And that's why you're seeing the Accentures or the, the Deloitte's or having those conversations much higher up that aren't necessarily just about the marketing. Marketing is still really relevant, but not in a silo. Mm. Manufacturing is really relevant, but not in a silo. Mm. Management of a company really, but if you can start to pull all of those pieces together um, and remove those silos, which is what I was, I was doing with that company um, that I was working with at London Business School, none of them knew each other and they all worked for the same company and they were all in different countries and they all had different job functions. And it was just trying to, by giving them that one idea, to get them to work together for a common goal. And again, you know, maybe companies need to put measures of success in as to how often have you worked with other people within the organisation. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And actually... It's, it just makes so much sense when you say that and, and that broader look at a business from manufacturing down. Yeah. Because marketing and advertising, as you've just said, is obviously still relevant. But in some instances, on a timeline, it comes right at the end. Yeah. After all of this other stuff that's so critical to consumers yeah. and to people And in also, general. you've got media that's booked a year in advance. So it's a fait accompli that the brief comes in, we want a TV ad, because that's you, what's been booked. To, yeah. Yeah. So... It's I can't fix the whole thing, but I definitely have got a much bigger um, picture understanding since I've been um, working with NYC. And do you think you, um, even when you were in the agency world, do you think you actually wanted to get stuck into problems that you didn't get to solve because it was so defined as marketing? Weirdly enough, I guess for the the 16, 17 years that I was at Ogilvy, I I didn't see myself in advertising. The people that um, I most connected with, weirdly, weren't the Ogilvy and Mather above the line uh, people where I, that's where I'd cut my teeth, you know, at GGT and Simon's Palm, it was very traditional above the line style work, TV press posters, etc. The people I started to connect much more with were the um, Ogilvy One Direct and the experiential guys and the PR guys and not the um the tv people at all and i stuck because i was looking at other areas i wasn't looking to do um a tv ad i was looking to you know we were looking at virtual worlds at that time it just had us look as to why are we doing it what's the reason what do they want out of it and most of the time it wasn't necessarily the same brief that the ad people were working on it was to solve 
um, internal comms issues or, I don't know, other issues that weren't necessarily directly advertising. I suppose it's, I suppose that's the point is it's, the, it's having those smarts and that creativity that can be applied anywhere, can't it? But you, but maybe you typically find creative people in more of a defined role in marketing, yeah. whatever it is. But actually, if you take someone out of that and let them have sight of other problems, which yeah. I guess is what I suppose the NY Collective is there for. And I remember at Ogilvy, how many, maybe 15 years ago, I'd seen that this was an issue. I'd, I'd met various people on, because I always see what is going on on the outside and bring it in, whereas most people are doing their day job and, and don't really look up. I was able to, I had the luxury of being able to, to see who was out there and what they were doing and a much bigger picture understanding. And I had seen that, you know, the need for business and creativity to be much closer and um and i i managed to get the ceo to employ someone who was a, a insead professor a visiting insead professor and her title rory gave her her title which was business in creativity and vice versa <laughs> and her name's Liri anderson and um but she didn't last she lasted maybe a year or 18 months because they just couldn't understand how to use her um when do we take her to meetings is she going to make us look bad or mm. again fear lots mm. and lots of fear when really we could have been so much further along with with someone looking at it from different perspective i want to put a couple of listener questions to you but before we do let's quickly plug rough diamond Uh-oh. so um for anyone who's not familiar with your Amazon bestseller, <laughs> what's it all about? Okay, so it's, um, it's about turning disruption into advantage in business and in life. So there are a lot of life lessons in there as well. Um, uh, you know, when, it, when shit hits the fan, how you go about dealing with it. And there are, you know, they're just really good lessons as to how you deal with it especially good with how you deal with it in business because there's been lots of tricky situations I've found myself in in wanting to do something but told no but do it anyway um and uh, so there's lots of stories like that lots of stories as to how to deal with change in 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 the best way and uh, lots of experiences and tricks and tips so it's it's a quite a, an easy read, mainly because I didn't type it, I didn't write it, I spoke it. So when it came about me trying to type the book or you know getting the words out of my brain and into my fingertips, I found that really difficult. Whereas um, my partner had suggested, well, there's an app called Day One, which is a journal app, and as you speak, it types. And I kind of did. I'm a natural speaker communicator and I found it much easier to get the words out by speaking out loud. So as I I'd do one paragraph, go back, make changes, um, because I'd say Dave Trot and it would put save Trot. <laughs> save Trot, save trot. <laughs> on a picket line. Yeah. <laughs> so I would go back and um, make a few changes and then I'd do one paragraph, another paragraph and looked round and a chapter was done and looked round and, and 16 chapters were done. Yeah. So, and I, I did that between the spaces of the February to the June. So really seven days a week, very committed from my hours that I found most, I was most awake yeah. <laughs> were four till seven at night and I'd be rewarded with dinner at like seven thirty, eight o'clock or whatever. And did I would you have do... a structure to that though? Did you know what 
as in like what you were planning to talk about that week or how yeah did you the structure was all in the chapters yeah so I knew I and I thought about um what am I going to put in that chapter okay and then I would finish that chapter right over the course of a couple of days but I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still very structured like that, even with my own marketing, if you like, because I'll do seven days a week, an hour each day, say half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening, across all of my channels like LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook for me, and Facebook for the book, and I will constantly be updating whatever it is, but not all the same story, spamming all the same sites. Most of the time there'll be different things I might have read, an event I might think that's interesting, something to share, something I've been, you know, your podcast, your book, you know, things that I find interesting that I'll share across all those platforms, but very methodical seven days a week. Um, I am, I guess that's just my awareness and then interest and then desire and then action. So yeah, yeah. the basic Aida. Because especially when you're on your own, you're it's down to you to spread your story and, and, and we're all a brand, aren't we? Yeah. Now. So it's just I, I am in control of what it is that I want to say. Nice. So how did you reward yourself when you finished the final chapter? Um, God, I was so relieved. <laughs> I just relieved that it was done. Um, I was relieved I didn't take the money from Ogilvy and that I could express myself fully uh, and be totally honest and transparent with really how things had happened and my story throughout. Didn't have to go through lawyers or get things approved. I could just... It was very cathartic, actually, um, getting a lot of things, divorce and and mum having terminal cancer. And, uh, you know, it really does go into intimate detail of... Problems that we all encounter, uh, particularly more so with me within work, because that was the, the, the route that I went was to try and make things better, which is called change. But it's seen as actually that you're a pain in the arse. Yeah, and there's a fine line, isn't there? And, and I think you've, um, you've articulated that um, earlier really well about being a, not a troublemaker or a mischief maker that perception of, of making change can be seen as that when actually the intention and the end result yeah. is often much, much better. So and I think that bizarre. goes back to education. And I, I, I talk about that as well in the book and the rough diamond program that I, I put in place to get kids from 14 to 16. Yeah, which you're doing some amazing mentoring on yeah, as well. Yeah, into yeah. Ogilvy. So that was a diversity program that was before everyone started talking before about diversity. Talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's... That was just from experience, from from raising my own kids. You know, Max, at the time, my son was about to be expelled from school every five minutes. And then I really kind of got down to it. Well, what's he doing that's so bad? And actually, he was just disruptive in terms of he would ask the teachers, well, why and how you said and how come and how do you know? And Google said something different. And the teachers would say, sit down and shut up and I don't want to hear from you in eight hours. And he couldn't. And I was seeing that in the work environment where the, the agency people were saying to the newbies coming in, sit down and shut up and I'll tell you what to do and not allowing for this new way of thinking or, or actually not um, rewarding them for thinking in different ways. We've always done it like that, so we're going to continue to do it like that. Don't mess with the system. People like me can't help it. Um, and I don't know why we are different necessarily from uh, maybe it's creativity I don't know, but we can just see another way. Yeah, but that that, that um, being inquisitive is so powerful, and that's what is so. It's, it's just dangerous to lose that. I remember, funny enough, I remember getting absolutely hammered 
in my first ever agency role for asking a senior client what a certain acronym meant that yeah. he was chucking <laughs> around everywhere and he didn't know and it, and I I was hammered after the meeting I was you know I was yeah. pummeled for asking yeah. that question but I just I didn't know what he meant so I just I said what, it's what funny happened? there was um a girl that worked with me for years Tara and um I always promoted her above you know she was a baby planner and I always saw her actually as very senior planner and um she was working with me on a particular job and her line manager had made her cry. And I thought, oh, well, this must be good then if she's crying. <laughs> if they've made her, they must be worried about something. Yeah, yeah, it's that fear, uh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so she's crying and I'm laughing and I'm saying to her, this is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Questions. Right, so asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So we've had a question in from Grace. Grace says, you talk about people needing to be comfortable with experimentation and ambiguity. Can you elaborate on that and advise how we can get other people to be comfortable with it too? Mm. I think you have to test and learn because you can't have an opinion until you've done it. And so therefore you have to do it on a small scale, not huge, on a small scale, make it happen. And then you can say, oh, no, actually, we shouldn't have done that. Or yeah. actually, that's worked. So have an opinion when you've actually got your hands dirty. So the whole people getting other people's talks written annoys me because the people who are given the talk haven't actually done the work. So yeah. therefore they they can't empathize um and they don't know whether it actually has worked or hasn't worked yeah it's really important to answer the question yeah i think so yeah i Good. think so i'm sure i'm sure grace will let us know if it doesn't yeah let but me it, know grace <laughs> but it, but also that ambiguity is really um important is important for the sake of innovation like you've got to, yeah. you've got to try things even if you think this might not work but let's try yeah, it yeah and, and and that's where um sometimes you know, people like giles for instance and i i kind of mentioned that before i can't always like when i did the rough diamond scheme and the, the chairman at the time or CEO said, I do not want you doing that. I said, but I can't, I am, I, you're hiring people like white middle-class Oxford educated over and over again. And I'm not able to work with them in terms of wanting them to think of other ways of doing things. Mm. Uh, and I've come up with this idea and I couldn't really express it, I guess, eloquently enough or even in a PowerPoint. I just knew that it was the right way forward uh, because I am a visionary and I'm looking at new ways of doing things. And he said, no, nope, don't want you to do it. And it was kind of a couple of years later and it was all done and structured and, um, and working brilliantly. We'd had our first batch of rough diamonds in um, a couple of times over. And he said, I've just had lunch with the Dean of Ravensbourne uh, and you're doing work with them. And I said, yeah, we're doing like this much work. And he said, uh, that was a really good idea of mine. <laughs> As in, it was his idea. But again, goes to the fact that he allowed me to experiment and he couldn't probably cope with that level of ambiguity. So I, sometimes you go under the radar and you just test it and you just test the waters. And you do, it's fine for me because I'm fine with ambiguity. I know something will come of it, right or wrong, test and learn. Um, so you just find the people who are okay with it small little task force and you go ahead and you test and learn it and then you can come back with 
we've done this and this is what it looks like and then you've got the PowerPoint to back it up. Yeah, and then you learn from it. Yeah. That's what I've always said when we touched on it before we started recording about failing and getting mm. people to try and fail things because then in, in failure you learn, oh, that didn't work or this didn't work, maybe it's this. Yeah, or just, not everyone just, learns. Mm, I think true. that's also a life lesson. So try and, um, if you're in this space, try and find the people that are like-minded, yeah. similar tribe. Yeah. Or you just bang your head against the wall yeah. consistently. Yes. Um, question two is from Matt and Matt has asked what other agency process so, so I think he's referring back to Ogilvy and digitising the trafficking mm. process and everything what other agency processes do you think still need improving and he's put in brackets billing meetings mm. job trafficking etc oh god I could um, I mean they, All those, of are them. The, those are the kind of <laughs> workshops that I work with it depends what the problem is yeah so if the problem is um, money and you need more of it, maybe look at a different model. Maybe look at a leveraged business model. Maybe look at not having staff come into a huge building. Maybe look at the gig economy and pulling talent in when you need it. There's lots of different maybes as to what you could do to change process, depending on what, your, what it is that needs, what the question is. So um, everything can always be improved upon as long as you know who is out there and other things that are being done so that you can have an opinion of let's try and do it how they're doing it. But if you're just doing the same thing over and over again and you don't know what else is out there, then you're not going to really be able to improve upon anything because you've got nothing to go by. So that's, you know, that was the beauty of my job then and now is that I'm out there seeing the weird and the wonderful and the amazing. Mm. I'm going to an event in London next Monday called Corporate Rebels and they have a whole host of different ways of doing things for businesses over the last however many years. And those are the kind of people that then you can say, okay, that's interesting what that company in Amsterdam has, have done. I wonder how relevant that could be for my company. But unless you're out there looking at those kind of things, you're just going to stay doing the same thing over and over again and expecting um, a change. That sounds really interesting, Corporate Rebels. Yeah, uh, they've just uh, launched a book as well. So they've got an event next Monday in London. I can send you the link. Oh, cool. That sounds good. Uh, so the final part of the interview then is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So number one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I... Uh, be happy in the moment I'm not very patient because of the the kind of personality I'm used to juggling many balls in the air at the same time and if something's not happening I then think something's wrong but it's not I just have to learn to sit with it and that's been um, kind of good advice the older I've got in you know there's there's a plan somewhere and just be patient and sit with it mm. for a little bit Almost like when I used to fire off those emails. Like, uh, if you just give it that 24 hours. Yeah, hour. I always sleep on them now. Yeah. yeah. So that is my, just just learn patience mm. um, yeah. more, I think. Good answer. Uh, question two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think try and find another way of making... Um, the system work away from the old financial model. There's, there's definitely got to be other ways where you put people first um, rather than um, shareholder value 
first there's just got to be another way because there's a lot of people with a lot of issues and burnout and the whole mental health and mental awareness and mindfulness and holistic therapy has never been I just think that it's it's burning people out and not caring about them. And I think at large companies, you can end up being a number because you are a number on a spreadsheet. I just think there might be an, there, there might be another way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe you're right. I hope you're right anyhow. Um, aside from Rough Diamond, which we will link to on this episode, are there any other books that you would recommend? All of Trotty's books. All of Trotty's, yeah, they come up a lot, actually. Yeah, um, what other books? Anything by um, Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yeah. So any of his uh, are really, really good. Mm-hmm. I get Rotman, which is um, a business school in Canada. Okay. And Rotman. It's Rotman yeah. magazine. Just a really, really good read. And I've got a few downstairs, but I'm not going to go downstairs. <laughs> no, that's good. And, and, and they're both new to the show, so that's always oh, good. Oh, good. Because we do get the same titles often pop up, but they're, they're, they're unique. Mm. So we will, we will link to those. Um, and the fourth one is, is we always like to dedicate every show to stump someone. And we always um, ask our guest if they would do the honours. I, I definitely would dedicate it to my mum, who passed um, three years ago. I had a really huge awakening, and I, again, I talk about it in the book, where I thought all of my success was down to my dad and that I take after my dad. And But actually, a lot of the success was down to my mum being difficult and pernickety and nothing's ever good enough. And it gave me the ability to brush all those things off my shoulders. Uh, to be able to then move forward with how I see change and not be caught up with what do other people think. Um, And that was was a skill from her that I learned. And I didn't... And thank goodness she was... I went to this thing called I Discover and it it gave me 18 months back with my mum to change the way I was with her. And so normally I used to phone her up and say, Mum... Um, stick dad on the phone because I couldn't be bothered with her pessimism or negativity and once I then said oh mum what do you think and I could start to engage in a different way it was just really powerful to have that time back with her Mm. Um, and rather than she would have passed and I would never have known uh, Mm. what the, the value that she gave to my life yeah ending on a really kind of no no that's amazing to recognize that as well it's lovely yeah this episode is very proudly dedicated to your mum. Thank you. Um, so as a, as a final call to action, everyone listening, if they head over to calltoaction.co, we'll share links to everything discussed, including the NY Collective, to Rough Diamond, the book recommendations. How else can our listeners get more Nicole Yershon? There is only one Nicole Yershon. As in, if you... If you Google. If you Google. Uh, I've, there's no one else by that name. <laughs> so my parents obviously understood SEO. And, uh, but no, seriously, so everything is Nicole Yashin. Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay. And just ask, you know, I'm really, um, I'm really good at getting back to people. And, and if I don't, they just try again because um, I like connecting with people. That's how I learn. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's nice to have such a unique name. I know. Wonderful. Um, 
So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, a real pleasure, and a privilege to talk to you. Thank you. Um, And thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. Uh, It's easy to find GASP online. You can go to CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. (laughs) 